Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 231. This is Tim Maluli filling in for Tom this week. Brendan is here with me as well. The first article that we wanted to talk about was written by Ben Carlson, uh, and it deals with the psychology of sitting in cash. Brent, you want to break it down for us? Ben is one of the more prolific writers, uh, bloggers out there. So he's writing multiple posts, I think maybe four or five a week normally. Right. And uh, this this one, you know, he was writing about like the, the idea of going to cash with your investments, whether it be uh, because you think things have become too extended and you're going to wait for a pullback or because you're nervous. I mean, however you get there, once you're in cash... Like, like, what do you do then? Right. And it's timely because, you know, obviously over the last couple of weeks, the market has pulled back. And then as of this recording, you know, the market, at least for the time being, has seemed to at least stop going down. And today it's up. But, you know, that brings into the question, like, when when is the right time to get back into the market after you've made the decision to get out of the market? Yeah. And it's going to be obviously dependent on like what you're trying to accomplish but ben was kind of getting at like the idea that you know cash gives you optionality which is true i think you know as as an aside you should always have money liquid ready to go outside of your market investments but within the market it gives you optionality too to kind of like quote unquote like swing at a fat pitch like like Buffett talks about like being patient and like waiting for your pitch and these opportunities, but that means being able to identify them, which is like really tough. Like, so if, if you have a bunch of money in cash, I mean, how do you, how do you recognize that it's an opportunity? If the market's falling, you're probably scared. Yeah. And so like one of the ideas that Ben talks about is that like corrections or bear markets don't make it any easier to pull the trigger. So like, like I just said, like while the market is falling in theory, it sounds like, oh yeah, stocks are on sale. Like I'll, I'll jump in there and like buy at a discount. But in reality, it becomes really difficult to actually act upon that and pull the trigger in the heat of the moment. Right. Yeah. You hear about that, like, oh, they're on sale. And people always say that while the market's going up, but you never hear people say that when it's going down. Right. Everyone's like, oh, is this the start of something else? Yeah. Is this the start of, you know, another recession or another 2008 everyone gets really worried it always could be and there are always like scary factors that people begin discussing when the market's pulling back trying to explain what's happening and some of them obviously are the same old stories all the time and they're kind of ridiculous but but other times these are perfectly reasonable things that people are discussing so i don't know like it it takes a little bit of uh, humility, I think, to just recognize that you probably won't be chomping at the bit to put your money to work when the market has, you know, dropped 20, 30 percent and you've been you've been sitting on cash. I, I think right. it it almost uh, one of one of the analogies Ben uses in this post is like uh, cash becomes like a like a warm blanket. Uh, it's like a warm blanket on a cold Saturday morning when you right. when you don't want to get out of bed. It's just like, yeah, yeah I could put my money to work, but this is kind of comfortable. Right. And then you look and you blink and five years have gone and your money still isn't working for you. It's sitting in cash. I mean, may have been a good, you may have nailed it in the short term. Maybe you did sidestep some damage, but if you don't get back in at some point in the future, I think it's going to be something you look at in hindsight as, uh, you know, if, if not a mistake, then you, you get rid of all the benefit that you had of sidestepping, whether, I mean, whether anybody can effectively do that. Right. 
I think that was another point too. It's like you have to, in this case, you have to nail the market timing aspect of it twice. And just yeah. doing it once is hard enough. Doing it twice, meaning you have to nail it on the way down and then you have to nail it on the way back in, assuming you want to put your money back in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's You've got to be so flexible like mentally to do that because I right. think that the, the type of person who correctly nails like a market top or calls a decline, it's probably calling for that like pretty regularly. So I think just to generalize, like those those people are probably like pretty pessimistic. And then to be able to then pivot somewhere near the bottom and become an optimist and then call the reversal of right. everything getting better, I think not many people are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde like that, where they can just like become a totally different person with a different disposition. Right. Uh, I don't know. Maybe depends on what kind of what kind of research they're doing. I don't know, uh, but I would bet that it's yeah. not going to be the case. It's going to be pretty difficult for the same person to make those correct calls on both ends. Yeah, and I mean, in this specific instance, you know, it's it's hard to avoid whipsawing yourself when getting out and getting back in because if someone in the midst of this latest pullback like a month ago, they could be wanting to get back in now like only weeks later mm-hmm. you know, it's not like they were sitting on the sidelines for five or four or five years yeah you know like yeah. that's a matter of it hasn't even been a month yeah and you're and you know sentiment has started to shift back like away from the pessimistic side of things you know you could want to get your money back in but it's only been a couple of weeks yeah you might feel kind of foolish yeah I, I think too uh if you let's say you go to cash because you think you know things have been uh, too good for too long and that we're, we're due or whatever. If you go to cash, not in the environment of like, oh, the market's pulling back, like now I'm going to do this. You, you just do it because you are dead set that things are overvalued or extended and the market's going to go down at some point in the future. What if it never does? I mean, it will eventually, but like you get what right. I'm saying. Like what if, what if I think Ben talked about in the post, like what if in 2014, uh, you, you went to cash after like a lights out year where the market was up something like 30% in 2013. You right. Just like, this you, is, couldn't, you couldn't think it can't, it can't continue from yeah, here. This like, is last ridiculous. Year was too crazy. Yeah, exactly. So, right. okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go to cash because obviously we're due for some kind of a correction. I mean, you have had, you know, some five and 10% moves there, but you haven't had like a dramatic opportunity or a green light, so to speak, to say like, wow, things right. just got cheap. Like you were right. This was so overvalued. So maybe since the end of 2013, early 2014, you flipped to cash and you've just been sitting there since. Right. There's been great returns out there for you that, I mean, depending on who you are, maybe you need those for your retirement one day. Like, right. And you've foregone those. You're waiting in cash now and you just, it becomes harder and harder the longer you're sitting in cash. Uh, you, you come up with more and more reasons for why this is defensible and uh, you become convinced that it's the right thing to do and you wait longer and longer and you never get back in. Yeah. I guess the mentality for those people, like after a 30% year, just because the market goes up 30% in one year doesn't mean that it needs to correct itself 30% for you to like feel okay with the market again. Like you said, there were some 5 and 10% pullbacks along the way from 2013 till now, but it wasn't that like big 30% move in the downside that maybe people like that were expecting. Yeah. Uh, nice, nice segue though, because speaking of five and 10% uh, corrections in the market, 
uh, Charlie Bellello from Pension Partners had some pretty good data. Um, Charlie is always one to contextualize things well, in my opinion. And he posted a chart recently that had all of the S&P 500 corrections greater than 5% from the March 2009 lows. Right. He said uh, it started out by saying that, you know, the S&P has given back 11% pretty much all of its gains for this year. And he was saying how it's the largest decline since earlier this year. Yeah, <laughs> right. Which it was almost identical. Is, um, right. If, if that was the bottom, uh, you know, whatever this was, like a, a week, week and a half ago. I mean, if, right. if that was, it was almost identical to the January, February move that we saw earlier this year, and not too different in terms of like how many days it happened over either. Which right. is which is kind of interesting. Just like a really swift eleven and a half percent drawdown. Like these things are never precise, but like that. You know, reg- pretty regular correction, but it never seems that way. I mean, yeah. I mean, it. He outlines, you know, the number of corrections or five percent moves down greater in the market over the last ten or so years, mm-hmm. and the average number of days that it's lasted is about forty-two. Um, the median, though, is around twenty-six. So, like, give or take a month yeah. for these corrections, and the average decline is about eight, about nine percent. Again, with the median somewhere in between eight and a half, nine percent. Yeah. So pretty it, much every year on this chart too has like one or two instances. I think the only one missing here is uh, twenty seventeen. Yeah. You know, and, and that was like yep. pretty abnormal. Right. We hit two thousand nine. We had. I mean, even four instances: two thousand ten, three; two thousand eleven, three; even that that great year that we were just talking about in twenty thirteen had yeah. one of them. Thirty three days. The market seven went down seven and a half percent. Right, that was like the taper tantrum. And people the, right. were worried about, you know, the Fed and and interest rates, and uh, the market sold off along with bonds. Right. So then, you know, in after, the midst in the midst of a gangbusters year right. in the market, I mean, that's the best year in recent memory. Right. So say better you than last sold, year. You sold because the market was going down seven and a half percent during that month, and mm-hmm. then and then never never got back in. Yeah. You know, just even just to finish out that year. Yeah. You know, you missed quite a bit. So kind of wrapping those two two posts together yeah i think they pair nicely yeah Um, but it's also like it just shows the regularity that these things happen with and obviously um a lot of people would say okay so this is showing all of the ones that have basically been nothing since 2008 right um so so yeah i mean this doesn't cover the one that was the one in recent in in recent memory right um but this is to say that there are plenty of opportunities. I'm sure we could go down this list and start ticking off like the reasons, either in hindsight or in the moment that we came up with for why the market was selling off. But there are always reasons to get scared out of stocks or your investment plan or your you know, diversified portfolio. And more often than not, they are just that. They're just opportunities to be scared out of something that is otherwise you know, reasonable and set to accomplish, you know, some some kind of rate of return that's going to support your your lifestyle and your goals over the long term. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to dismiss how scary this could be, but it's it's a pretty regular occurrence, even though it never feels regular or normal when it's happening. Right. Yeah. And it's hard to identify. Charlie also talked about different kinds of bounces. Yeah. Like at the end of these pullbacks, and you know, there were a couple different ones, uh, and you know, what they signified for, for the market, you know, like a dead cat bounce or the Holy Grail, he called it, which was, you know, the, um, a bounce at the end of 
or like at 2009 and then mm-hmm. the market just comes back roaring from there yeah and i mean he finished the article asking like well which one which one of these bounces like applies now or will be the next one and like we don't it's impossible we don't know. To yeah know. yeah yeah maybe a good way to approach it is just just trying to come up with like a blend of investments or strategies that that works for you. So obviously, if you don't need to be not being 100% in stocks or if you are the kind of person who is, you know, prone to freak out during during corrections like this, maybe coming up with some kind of like a rules-based tactical model that's going to use, you know, a signal or two to uh, tell you, you know, with the piece of your portfolio that that you are allowed to get defensive. Right. Um, because I think if you're going to do this in the heat of the moment, like, flying by the seat of your pants, gut calls. I think you, like I said, have plenty of opportunity to be psyched out yeah. by the market. And the kind of, I think, like mental scarring that can come from getting freaked out during a 10% correction, selling all your stuff, realizing it was a mistake, getting back in, yeah. getting freaked out again because inevitably the market is you know, going to drop at some point again. Right. You just running through this cycle a couple of times, I think can freak some people out enough to the extent that they like don't invest or just have no idea what they're doing whatsoever. And it's, I don't know, you, you can learn from doing things like that, but it can also, you know, it can I think it it's, freak you out. I think it's tough though for some people as individuals, because that requires an extreme amount of self-awareness and also just willpower, set rules for yourself and not just like manually override them when things go bad. Totally. Uh, so for me, that just points towards the be- one of the one of the benefits of working with another person. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of take the power out of your hand. Yeah. In a, in a sense, it's you know, we're all it's, we're all really tough. good at finding uh, the flaws or mistakes that other people did. So right. there's definitely like that's one of the biggest benefits of working with uh, an advisor. Yeah. But an advisor can easily become a scapegoat. And there can be finger pointing between a client and advisor if communication isn't good. And so just having like the right expectations when, when you're working with another person even. Yeah. I, I think I agreed, obviously, in, uh, in a self-serving fashion that I, I think one of the best things an advisor can do for a client is being like this behavioral mechanism that, that doesn't let you rip up the script yeah. on your long-term Putting investment plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there are it's, still it's, ways around yeah, it's, that. Right, exactly. Know? It's not like uh it's not like uh you can always fi- you yeah. can fire your advisor and find someone who will let you dictate the game anyway. Sure. Ultimately, you, know? so you, you can, can do what you want you to can do game with, the system. with your own money right. and uh yeah. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Yeah, I would always say that uh, being more in tune with uh, your own emotions is more important than being like the biggest brainiac when it comes to like which strategy to use or or tactics for investing. I think if you have uh, the right emotional makeup to do something, stick with it, recognize that it's, you know, going to go into and out of favor and be fun and terrible and difficult and all of these things all in between. You can, if you can recognize that and, and become mostly okay with everything that's going to happen, uh, I think you're going to outperform people even that are 
super duper smart. Yeah. Kind of switching gears here a little bit for, you know, still on the emotional side of things for people. Why do you think when it comes to like taking tax losses with their investments, people always do that in December? There was a good article in the Wall Street Journal about why investors shouldn't wait until December to take their tax losses. Yeah. Uh, so this was from Meyer Statman in the journal. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously you have more, well, maybe not obviously, I guess if the market, if the market pulls back in January or February and you have the opportunity to, um, and it makes sense, you have a, a taxable account and you have some losses in that you can recognize and maybe pair with some gains. Yeah. Um, you can tax loss harvest in February or January right. for the calendar year. You have 12 months to do it, Yeah. but for whatever reason, you know, towards the end of the year, it does come more to the top of the mind. Do you think that it's because there's, I mean, obviously the, the deadline is mm -hmm. December 31st, um, but some people might put in like a emotional anchor when they buy, buy a position. Totally. And they give themselves at least to like the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Maybe like, oh, I'll just, I'll wait to the end of the year. If I still have a loss, then then I'll take the loss. Yeah, uh, I mean, know, we all like, hate recognizing losses. This right. is like yeah, classic like, loss aversion behavior. Yeah, no one right? wants to admit that they, you know, were wrong or they failed. They picked the wrong stock. Yeah. But like picking stocks is hard. Yeah. You're going to pick the wrong stocks. But I guess that deadline is kind of the last. They want to wait until the very last second to realize that loss because hey you never know it could come back yeah. it could come back i'm down 20 percent, but it could come back right so like the idea of uh being able to break even is always a uh a one that comes up with investments it's like well uh you know if i can just get back to even then i'll move on and, and we'll forget about it because the pain of like you said recognizing yeah. a loss is like basically admitting uh a mistake or that things just didn't work out in the short term i mean yeah. a, a lot of factors can influence that it doesn't have to be a mistake but in our minds it's like wow i i screwed up this was a mistake uh and being able to avoid that or kick the can maybe until like right. november december is appealing so and uh, then i, I mean that you has could always do with it kind of getting back to like gaming the system you could be like well i'll i'll wait until the end of december to see where it's at and then you kind of kick the can for a week or two and then like up oh, well it's january might as well I'll wait till the end of this year. You could do it, you yeah. Know, keep I mean, giving yourself a longer and longer. Yeah, leash. loss is a loss. Like you're gonna have a if you have a loss on the last trading day of the year, you're gonna open with a loss the next trading day of the year. So you could right. recognize your loss whenever you want and still right. use it uh, either to offset you know yeah. a small amount of taxable income or gains in other investments. So yeah, I guess even so to give some credit to the people, I guess if you wait till December, but then like go through with it, like assuming that tax loss harvesting makes sense for, for what you're trying to do. Right. If you, if you actually go through with it, I mean, it's better than not doing it at all. Yeah. I think being, being conscious of, uh, of taxes and taking, taking advantage of something that didn't work out in your favor is smart. So maybe, right. uh, the December people are, are, you know, it's, it's better than somebody who just better like, than not doing never it. sells because yeah. they're still at a loss. Right. right. Depending on, it doesn't really matter when during the year, but like if you just have a taxable account and say you have some positions that you've held for like years and years and they've done really well. Uh, but now you're kind of in this, you know, pickle where you have these great investments, but you have all of these gains. It's like, Maybe, it's like, like I have an account with a hundred thousand dollars in it, but $50,000 of it is, uh, capital gains. Right. And maybe I need money for something, but like, I don't have any 
like invest like, like yeah i, I don't want to sell, sell any these, of these investments I, because i have yeah. extra taxes to pay because of it right it's not as as, as accessible yeah. as just a hundred thousand sitting in a bank account right. so yeah if so, you can be smart about that and right. maybe maybe like pair it together to like periodically shave some uh some right. gains off of other investments with with losses that you're taking uh right you know and other ones yeah. you can be smart about setting yourself up to like have cash available that isn't going to totally crush you on, yeah. on taxes when the time comes. Yeah. So I guess just listeners keep in mind that like that doesn't need to happen in December. If something, if you have a loss and it's March and you want to take some of that, if it, pair makes, it, sense, with the it game, makes sense, then right. do like, it. You, you know, it, you like it doesn't, do it. yeah. I feel like some people might think that like, oh, you know, like you need to wait until December. Or, yeah, this is time to kinda, do it. It's, right. it's almost the opposite. Yeah. Like you don't have to. Right. It's it situationally sense, dependent. It doesn't really, like, yeah. yeah. It's going to make sense now or right. next month or yeah. I mean, we, over the summer, I mean. We've said it in conversations here, like the market doesn't know what month it is. Yeah, Like right. your stocks don't know what month it is. Yeah, so yeah. like they don't yeah. perform any differently, you know. Yeah. Now that's, that's a good point. That's like along the lines of the... Uh, the famous like the stock doesn't know that you own it i think that was like right jesse livermore or something but like that makes perfect sense to me yeah like, yeah like, Ni- like it nike nike the company doesn't necessarily like care that it's november right uh exactly. like it doesn't it doesn't perform differently because of that so for you to say i'm gonna wait for a specific month or time of to year december. to sell uh yeah yeah don't need to do it yep so I think we had one more that we uh, wanted to touch on this episode, right? Yeah. So the last one was from the uh, Financial Times, and it was talking about how the the title was the smart beta growth engine sputters as investments question strategy. And a lot of questionable words in that title. Yeah. I mean, they're all going to slap a, a headline on <laughs> yeah. this. So like it was clickbaity and I yeah. was taking the bait. So I, I decided yeah. to read it. Um, but they were talking about how last year... Um, Smart beta funds, so big, big blanket term there. Smart beta funds took in like $92 billion in 2017. Right. Um, and this year, they've only so far taken in about $56 billion. So they're on track to not take in uh, quite as much as they did last year. Right. But um, still, still like close relatively. Yeah, in, yeah. Know, I mean, terms of- depending on the end of the year, maybe maybe they do get there. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure that sputters is... Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I don't <laughs> think that... It depends on what you define as sputtering. Yeah, right. You know, I, I would say some other areas of the market are are sputtering harder, I it, guess. <laughs> yeah, in terms of flows, this is a point that Eric Balcunis brought up uh, from Bloomberg. He said that active mutual funds, I mean, and this is probably the case last year too, have seen outflows again of over 100 billion dollars this year so i mean relatively to last year maybe smart beta funds are not taking in as much uh in terms of dollars this year but relative to what many would compare them to which is like you know the active sphere of uh of mutual funds they're they're crushing it obviously i mean huge gap in terms of flows yeah so i guess it's a relative sputter yeah relative sputter um the other thing you said it, it's it's kind of a blanket term like what is smart beta and we've i've seen this conversation on yeah. twitter as well like, they're referring to it as if it's like an asset class or something right. like but smart smart beta could mean like a ton of like we could be talking about like us large cap value stocks or we could talk be talking about like international momentum stocks so like any, anything that's not like cap weighted yeah yeah anything not market cap which weighted, is a lot yeah it's a ton to throw a blanket over so it's kind of like 
like referring to like hedge funds. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, this what this hedge kind? fund and that hedge fund could be like totally different. So to right. use a blanket and say, and oranges there. you know, hedge funds, hedge funds are crap. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. It seems like a very broad statement to make that could be very easily uh, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the same case could be made for, for smart beta. You yeah. know, it's like the, the growth engine sputtering. But what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that? you know, uh, value funds are taking in less or maybe like international markets haven't done so hot this year. Maybe their international smart beta funds are not doing as well. Right. Or are, It'd be more beneficial to kind of drill under the hood of yeah. smart beta. Right, right. Like our momentum funds Or just funds use a different term well. for yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Be more specific. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one.